Yes, guys, welcome back to the original Judo podcast. Super excited for today's episode. Uh, delighted to invite on. He's our first, I guess, guest from the US. He's a triple Olympian. He won the World Masters in 2016. And of course, he has an Olympic silver medal to his name. I am delighted to welcome Travis Stevens to the show. Travis, thank you so much for your time, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Um, first of all, we I'm sure most of my listeners will be well aware of who you are. You're not that far retired that you're, you're out of the memory. You've had some very memorable matches. Um, but could you start us off just by letting everybody know kind of how you got into judo? Um, and yeah, run us up to moving into full-time training. So I actually got started by accident. I signed up for the wrong sport at like a local youth center. And then it was kind of a seasonal thing. So I was stuck with it for three months and I kind of fell in love with it at that point. You know, it kind of checked all the boxes for me from being individual, physical, hard, uh, you needed a lot of athleticism to to be successful in it. So I like the challenging aspect of it. And then, you know, I suffered a really bad knee injury when I was like 11 or 12. And I was out of sports for four, almost five years. And then it wasn't until, you know, my second year of high school where I came back to judo. And then decided when I came back that I was going to do it full time and pursue the Olympics. Love that. I guess one of the things I want to ask is, is you've kind of said you fell in love with the sport. Over this side of the, the pond, we have no kind of real other grappling sports. I mean, BJJ is growing now, but we, we kind of get this image that US is really wrestling driven. Why did it end up being judo and not wrestling? Is it just where you were? Or again, is it just what you fell in love with? Uh it was completely coincidental and it all comes down to just the timeline in my life and, and how it all happened. So wrestling in, in the States is a school sport first and foremost, like we have private clubs here, but typically kids who wrestle wrestle in the school system. My, my elementary school didn't have team sports. Okay. Some school districts do. Like they have after school programs for kids. Mine didn't. So when I suffered my knee injury, I played no sports through middle school until high school. So sixth, seventh, eighth grade was no sports period for me. And my eighth grade year, um, I got cleared after... I think like three years, four years of nothing to like try. But the wrestling tryouts had already taken place in the summer before school. So I asked the wrestling coach like, hey, I don't care if I compete, but can I like practice just to like give it a shot? And he said no. So I went back into judo like right after that conversation because I wanted to do something. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that summer, I ended up getting a broken rib. Um, a guy landed on my ribs kind of funny and it cracked it. You know, I was fat and overweight at the time. But um, when I went in for my physical for my first year of high school, I failed. So I couldn't do the winter sports. 
So where wrestling sits. So I missed freshman year. So I played tennis in the spring when my rib healed up and I started doing judo after school my freshman year. Right towards the end of it after my rib because I tore my I partially tore my ACL and my meniscus in my knee playing tennis. Like it was like a walking catastrophe because I had gone so long with nothing that when I started doing every sport I could, my body was just like breaking down left and right. Um, so it wasn't until my sophomore year where like I actually passed a physical in the summer so I could register for all sports. And by that time I was a sophomore in high school, I was like, ah, forget it. I'm not going to wrestle. Even though I wrestled like with kids, I yeah. never formally like went to training or practice. Okay. Okay. Like I've wrestled in college rooms. I've wrestled in high school rooms, middle school rooms, like it's been a part of my training method just because it's a, it's a fun activity for me to do, but I was never able to compete in the sport. Okay. What, what was it you were meant to sign up for? Like that, that start was, I was also meant to, uh, join karate, but my parents took me along and we we're an hour late and they saw another group of guys all dressed in the same pajamas and um, oh, it must be the same. And that, that was how I started judo. What were you meant to be doing? American football. Yeah. Like that, helmet. Yeah. That is quite the change. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're gonna fast forward a little bit. You've you've gone full time. Uh I'm gonna jump into that first Olympic cycle. You you've done three Olympic cycles across your career, which I mean, in it of itself is an amazing achievement in in terms of resilience. Um but that first Olympics. Did the U.S. still have their kind of trial system whereby someone qualified the spot, but then anybody realistically could win it? Yeah, it was a it was an individual trials. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way the system worked worldwide back then was the country as a unit competed for points in every weight category. So you could earn points on not a global stage but a Pan-American stage and a European stage and an Oceania stage and an African stage. Okay. So there was a points roster that was kept because the Pan Am Union got, I want to say for men, it was either six or eight slots per weight class. And the way it worked back then was if you top five at the Worlds, yeah. then you were, your country was automatically guaranteed a slot and a potential seed. Yeah. So it was interesting because the Olympics in 2008, there was seeding, but it was for the player. Like every individual player could earn a seed, but the country earned a slot. Right. Okay. So right? if they ended up so, sending someone different, it would have been. Correct. They would randomly be thrown into the draw. So it created like a hectic scene for draws back in the day when you showed up to tournaments because individual players carried all their points, but they could lose a trials, which happened quite often, or they just weren't selected by Japan or Brazil or whatever that country was. And you would get these random players that were talented, just fighting like <laughs> world number one and world number two, or, you know, I say that today, but it would be like 
a European champion fighting a world champion in the same bracket because the European champion only had those points yeah. on a global scale. It was, it was a little bit chaotic, but qualifying for the Olympics in 2008 was easy. That was like a, that was like a guaranteed for men. The women had it a little bit more challenging, especially in the Pan Am union. Cause I think the women, you had to be top three in the whole union. So when you look at the Pan Am Union, we had Brazil, Cuba, Canada, U.S., and then you had a few other like outstanding players. So some weight classes, it was a challenge to go. Men was a little bit easier because when you got it was either eight or six, you know, we usually had somebody in the top five. And so that country was already taken off the list and it dropped down a slot. The whole Pan Am Union is usually only. 12 to like maybe 18 countries yeah so when you get six it's like you know anybody worth their salt in any way shape or form is going to get a slot at the olympics that that kind of trials format like you went in i think you were had you had you won the panams prior to that so you were the, like out and out number one um mm-hmm. you had players like aaron cohen um mm-hmm. gary st ledger yeah. Like, was there pressure on you in that trials? Or again, did you establish yourself at that stage? Like, dude, I didn't lose three matches in a year, much less three matches in a day. Like that. The, the biggest issues with a trials was it, it really sets the precedent for the athletes. And I didn't realize it until, until after, but when you haven't been to the Olympics and you're uncertain you're going to go there, there's this hype and there's adrenaline behind fighting a trials, right? And when you have that and you're not sure when you win the trials, you're at this like high of like, I did it, I'm going, but then the Olympics are like right around the corner. So it's really difficult as a country that's unprofessional right to promote hey guess what you can go to the olympics so the entire country is training hard which makes sense Mm -hmm. but the second you pull the olympics away from everybody what does everybody do ah fuck it i'm done so when it came time to like actually prepare for the olympics all your training partners all the people like they vanished nationwide they were gone because their career was over at that point they might as well wait until after the olympics after the year and then you know come back in 2009 and start training again fuck it i'm going on vacation including like yourself because you're like everybody was out partying and celebrating and like family dinners everybody's super excited but like the olympics are like two three months away (laughs) like that was like a step one does it so so that period up to the olympics becomes more challenging but does it add strength to the system as in because everybody's got a shot opportunity yeah everybody everybody believes everybody believes so do they do they does it help the system be strong because wrestling still has a similar system doesn't it yep and i know that's not in judo anymore it's not possible it's the athlete who qualifies but um I think at the moment in the UK, we've got a system where we have a national championships yeah. and 
previously, uh, if you made the national squad, you would get taken to an event like Europe's really accessible. You go to Belgium or Germany, um, but there's nothing on it anymore. And it's for me, in a way, it's devalued what it means to to compete in the national championships. There's a lot of pressure because there's a lot of eyes on you at that event. Um, and again, I wonder if in the similar thing, it's led to a weakening of the yeah. system. The world, the world ranking list killed judo in America. Okay. A hundred percent. It, it did a lot of things. It, it allows people to stay home, do what they want because the, what the world doesn't understand about America is we have like laws and regulations that don't put money into sport but they govern sport. Okay. So, so as an example, one of the problems that we face in the States is it's, it's against the law for a national governing body to put restrictions on competition above and beyond the IJF. Okay. So like, as an example, if you look at the world's, for America, we send a full team every year. If the IJF allows people to attend, we'll send them because we can't stop them, right? Yes. Like, so we can pick our team and we can fund our team, but if you wanna pay for yourself to go, okay, I can't, can't prevent it. It is what it is. Okay. So it makes it challenging for us to compete on a global scale because you get these people that don't really deserve to be there. Mm -hmm. Like when we would show up to the world championships, we would get people that, you know, they would be taking Jimmy's time or his father's time asking questions about gripping, but they showed up to none of the training camps. They never went overseas with us. They've never even gripped with that player. And it's like, you compete in two days and now you're asking questions. Like, it, it becomes a challenge of managing everybody's time expectations and, and what to do. So now people stay home and then they just go on the IJF tour Yeah. and the U S you know, in the U S like anybody can sue anybody. So if you start putting up like heavy restrictions, you have to be able to defend it on the legal side and justify why you've done certain things. So our entire country's like competitiveness and, willingness to do anything on the state side has diminished like even national camps they get white belts brown belts like people in their 40s and 50s like showing up to help train our national team like we don't have like a dedicated group of people whose sole focus is to win medals on the world stage as it sits today like they haven't even decided the calendar for 2023 yet they don't even know if they're going to like the Austria camp in Mittersill. They haven't figured it out. Or if they're going to like Valencia, Spain in January, they're like unsure. So what, what, what's that challenge then for you as an athlete? Like obviously you had, I think throughout your career, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, my, my research is haphazard. Uh, Jason Morris, then Jimmy Pedro, those guys got super amount of experience like competing internationally. Um, Obviously, they're managing, or Sonny Jimmy was managing other players on the world circuit. How are you choosing where to go, when to go? 
Like knowing so, that your federation's not supporting you. So I went to Jason specifically because he was named the 2008 Olympic coach. Okay. And then Jimmy was named the the 2012 coach. And then once we had success in 2012 that we had, he he was able to maintain that that coaching spot all the way through until 2016. Okay. When we all pretty much decided to retire. Um, I was going to come to this later, but we're kind of touching on it already. Um, we'll jump away from your career. USA Judo has had kind of two golden periods, and we're maybe at the end of one. Like 84, 88 Olympics, I think there were six medals across those two cycles. This Olympics, we've obviously had um, yourself, Kayla Harrison, Marty Malloy. What what made you guys so strong during that period? Um, I mean, I can't really speak to, you know, the 80s, but our, in my head, our heyday as a country was the late 90s. That's when we were like, we were really like, from a development stage on the national scale, all the way through onto the world stage, like, Jimmy had won a world title. Jimmy had won Olympic medals. Like Brian Olson had finished fifth at the Olympics. Um, he had bronzed at the Worlds. We had Sandy Bacher took fifth in Sydney. There were like five or six people that were like highly competitive on a world stage. Yeah. Like by today's standards, they would be like top 10 in the, in the world during the 90s. And some people in multiple weight classes. So there was a team, they were unified, they were traveling the world together and they were winning together as a team. And it was that type of atmosphere that, you know, we really took it upon ourselves from like 2010 ish to 2016, where, you know, we took a core group of us. It was me, Marty Malloy, Kayla Harrison, Jimmy, his father, Colton and a few other people where it was like we wanted us as a group to like win and at one point it became a you know when we went to a tournament somebody was coming home with a medal yeah like there was there was one year there were only two events that I fought in where I didn't fight for a medal but I won medals at everywhere one of them was the world's and the other one was like, whatever happened after like the Georgia Grand Prix. I was so tired after that event in March. But other than that, like we would come off that thing and, you know, we wanted each other to win. It wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, well, Marty won a bronze, so I have to make the final. It was like, we just wanted each other to be successful. Yeah. And it had that like family and that camaraderie that made it easy. And we were all excited to go travel together because we came out together. Cause it wasn't this, like you did better than I did mentality, or they wrote an article about you and not me. No one really cared as long as we were winning matches and winning medals. What, what kind of prompted that change in 2010? Is that Jimmy being taken on as national coach or is that something you guys made a conscious decision to do in the run up to 
or coming out of Beijing and in the run up to the London? It was a it was a conscious decision. Um, I was on a a bus somewhere in South America competing at one of the World Cups at the time, and I was sitting down with the team manager, and I had just dislocated my elbow. Like I was fighting um, Victor Penalber, and he came in for Sode, and he just happened to like catch my elbow. And my wrist got stuck in the gi and it was like nothing malicious, just, you know, judo, sometimes things happen. He went one way, I went the other, and then my arm was stuck in the middle. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to me and he was like, hey, like, what could we like really do better as like an organization to help you guys? And I was like, man, I go, I shouldn't be here right now. Like I ended up hurting my shot at the world championships because that summer I decided to compete in a world cup, not because I needed the preparation, but I needed the points to keep my funding coming in from the USOC. So our funding was on a, a points tiered system. So if you had 50 points, forget how they're cataloged, right? But if you had 50, let's say you make two grand a month, if that dropped to 49, you went to 1500. If that dropped to like 40, you went to a thousand. And so as certain events are worth more points or not, like we were doing the math in our head to decide like where we need to go in the world to get points so we can keep our money coming in. And then also on top of keeping that those points, we are making decisions on where we needed to go for experience. Because like, I don't want to go to the Paris Grand Slam if I need points. Like I would rather go to like, I don't know, like Australia or Perth or, you know, something like I did in South America because I knew my next competition after the Worlds wasn't going to happen until October. So I was going to I was going to be losing points. So I tried to get points on the board to maintain my funding. And I was like, dude, sign a contract. I'll compete and train full time. I go, but you got to at least pay my bills. I go. I'll make my spending cash on the metal on the podium because the IJF was paying at the time mm-hmm. and just just get me on a contract that covers my bills and I'll win medals. And they were like, that's not a bad idea. So they took five of us and they put us under contract and they paid us a salary just to do judo. The second they put us on salary and Jimmy put us on a training schedule, medals started flowing in it training became easy because we could actually look at specific events and we could look at certain athletes and know like, Hey, the French team always goes here. The Georgians usually go here. And when we needed experience with certain players, we could get to certain events knowing that certain countries would be there. We could go to certain countries just to train and develop and learn different styles of judo because we could fit it into the calendar. Cause if we miss three months of events, it didn't really affect our salaries. So we were okay making the, the investment in our time and our training instead of chasing points. How did you like personally frame frame competition that way? I think uh, it's quite easy for everybody to get caught up in this idea that this event is the most important thing and I have to win at this event rather than using it. And again, you've talked in other podcasts a little bit about this, rather than using it as a training testing opportunity. It's so easy for guys to get caught up going in. I have to do well. 
perhaps a detriment of their development. You know, Jimmy's father always said it best. He was like, there's a right way to win and there's a right way to lose. So believe it or not, like we would get in so much trouble if we won matches doing something we weren't supposed to be working on. Okay. He would be outraged. Um, like if we didn't do like a particular gripping pattern or we missed the opportunity to implement certain throws that, you know, we needed, like he knew we needed to develop these things if we were going to win at like more mm-hmm. important events. So every three to six months, we were adding new throws to our judo that we had to be implementing in an effective way on the world stage. Okay. Right. So we would go back to the drawing board. And then once we started to see success, we kind of left it alone and we would add new tools. So we were always developing as athletes and finding certain events on the calendar to perform at versus trying to perform at everything. Sometimes we would go to events just because in the States, we don't get hard Randori sessions. So we would go to tournaments and be like, okay, we need to, when we're overseas, we want to fight, you know, call it 10 matches in two competitions and we need to do 47 or 48 different Randori sessions over the course of two weeks. And then we would just map it out. And the goal is to just get through these different types of Randori sessions, right? At the end of the day, we want to win. But if I have to get a certain number of Randoris in before the World Championships or before Pan Am Games or before the event that, like, we need to win on the calendar, like, sometimes you would, like, Tokyo for me was always a challenge because we would go to Japan, like, two weeks ahead of time. And it's like, okay, it's volume. It's the end of the year. Like, we have to get enough Randorian. And then you end up doing all these rounds. And it's like, now I'm kind of shot. Right. I don't I don't have that like mid tone where like I can tone it down. Like if I'm in a room to be competitive, it's time to be competitive. I can't just sit there and do nothing. So. You know, it's it's just having those honest conversations and also, you know, when somebody when you lose and somebody says you did a good job, like it makes it easier, like you're still not really happy because nobody wants to lose, but you understand like the bigger picture and the bigger goal. Okay. No, I love that. Um, uh, yeah, again, jumping back and forth, like coming into London, it's it's your second Olympics. How's like what what's changed for you from from Beijing? Like you you ranked I think number eight going into it, so you you've got a world ranking. Like, how are you approaching that event differently from four years before? Two years before London, I knew I was going to the Olympics. In, in, in what way? Like you, you so confident that it's going to happen or? Um, mathematically, it seemed improbable. Okay. And then I want to say it was maybe like eight months into the qualification. It was more a conversation of, hey, what seat are we going to have and what players do we have to look out for? then am I going to go to the Olympics or not? Right. Like your your mindset shifts because once you get a certain number of points, they don't go anywhere. Like 
I can almost guarantee I'm going to at least top three at Pan Ams, right? Barring any type of like injury catastrophe. But like, if you don't think about those things, there are certain events that like we can go to where it's like, I've never lost at Tashkent. Like I've always medaled in Dusseldorf. You know, there are certain events where like they just fit well into your like body's timing of like wanting to perform on your calendar for who knows what reason that like you're going to get enough points throughout the calendar year just for participation. Like I was good enough to make that statement. Right. Because I usually floated, you know, in the 2010 through end of 2011, somewhere from like top 18 to like top 10. Mm-hmm. that's usually where like I was floating. Sometimes I could get into the top five, but then I'd have three or four months where like I finished fifth and seventh instead of like third or second, right? Like I was, I was floating. So it was like definitely going to go. Cause that's with doubles. So we're definitely going now. Now it just becomes like, what events do we really need to go? How many, matches do I need to have with certain players who would I realistically be drawing at the games and then start developing those game plans over the long term so your mental preparation going into 2012 was was a lot easier and as a country it was a lot easier because we knew like come January of 2012 like you knew who was going to the Olympics there were just a few people that like maybe could have squeaked something in if they had a good day, you know, on some of some version thereof somewhere. Like, I think everybody comes down to like the continentals with like, Oh, if I only make the final, like I'll get like the extra five points I need to knock this person off. And if that person loses over here, like that happens, I think for every country, but for the top players, like we were all set. We were all content with where we were going to be. Obviously, talking about London, I want to talk about the semi-final. Um, I'm sure it's the the one you, in fact, listening to you, some of your other podcasts that you've done, it is the one thing that gets brought up every single time, considering you went on to win Olympic silver. Um, Fucking match, man. <laughs> just average. Which which fight sticks with you the most? Is that one or the Olympic final? The semi-final of that London one, or that fucking yeah. that fucking match. Oh can't fucking stand it. <laughs> would you change anything? Looking back, would you change anything? Because it, it you look so composed for the whole day, up until the flags go up. Like you are a picture of composure. And I think to a greater extent than Bischoff, sometimes you can see a bit of panic in his face. And you just look composed all day. And then the flags go and. I fucking couldn't believe it. I just fucking couldn't believe it. I like. It's hard because when people say, would you go back and change anything? And it's like. I, from the bottom of my heart. Feel like I won that fight. So like it's. And I tell people this all the time. Like, yeah, I get that you shouldn't leave it in the hands of the referees. But what really hurt, I think, I think the most, what really like did it in for me was not necessarily losing, but not one of those referees felt like I won. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's what like, 
really, I think like the knife kind of went in and then when they all voted for him, it like twisted. And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom. And like, you could see it. Like when I went out for the bronze, like I wasn't okay. Like I was still upset about the semi that bronze turnaround time was too quick. I was like, I think I needed a couple weeks of <laughs> like, like getting that back. Cause to oh. me, the, the Olympics is not like the world championships. Like you don't, you don't get another one. Right. It's like, that was it. Like my, my Olympics ended on that flag race. I did not, I did not come for third place. I did not come for a medal. Like I, I came to win. And when it was taken, when that ability was taken from me to win, like, I remember being in the back room and like in full tears in the corner by myself, like big Jim grabbed me and he was like, you better get your act together. Cause if you don't get up for this bronze medal fight, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. And like, sure enough, I still regret it till this day. Still regret it. Like can't. And the whole fucking, the whole day was this like whirlwind for 81 kilos that like, no one ever mm. talks about like, and the crazy part is, um, we, as a, as a division, right. As 81 kilos, we all showed up in yeah. Europe the month before. And we all fought like the Croatia B tournament. Like Bischoff was there. Antoine was there. I was there. Sven Marish was there. Um, along with like three or four other like Olympians, all of us lost. Oh, in Croatia, I, all of us lost. Bischoff lost. I beat Antoine in the rapid charge, so he yeah. was out. Then I lost the next match, and I was out. I finished like seventh or something like that, or ninth. Like we just we were all beat up from training that like we couldn't even win a B level tournament, much less like the Olympics. But then. Like when you look at Antoine's career leading up to 2012, mm -hmm. nobody, nobody would have selected him to be in the Olympic finals. He has the day of his life. You know, Mamadli Burton, and you know, you, yourself you know later it, on. You know how it started? Mamadli didn't show up. Yeah. Just in terms of. Yeah. Okay, okay. He, like, he didn't show up in terms of like. Um, just wasn't there as a fighter or because again i've heard you talk a little bit about this previously like he was not there in the building like when we were warming up for our first rounds nico was walking around like trying to figure out like dude is he gonna show up for his first fight like he made weight like where is he antoine was in the shoot for his first match but madly ran into the building Put his gi on, no warm-up, no nothing, went out there and Antoine beat him. And that was the start to, like, his confidence boost to, like, mm. go through that whole day of beating people that, like, on paper at that point in time, he shouldn't have been able to beat. Because I think all of us looked at the draw thinking, Madley's going to beat, beat Antoine. Yeah. No, no, I'm, uh, speaking to you and Burton, like, again, 
I think yeah. it was very much prep was going to be in for Mamadli that second round. And then, yeah, the shock is going, oh. Yep. Actually, and now all is- these athletes in that quarter are like, <clears throat> great. Now, I've, this guy I've never thought of that is awkward. He's long. He's tall. Yeah. He's in very good shape for to, to anybody in judo. He's in great shape. Um, and he's tenacious. Like he, if you're not ready and you're mentally prepared for him, it's a challenging fight for anybody. And on the day, man, like it just, that one thing set him on a path to like take an Olympic bronze. In that bronze medal match, are you, are you conscious of it slipping away? Like obviously he scores the Yuko early on. And again, as you've said, he's mobile. He's really awkward. And the last 20 seconds, you're you're visibly frustrated. But, like, are you conscious of it slipping away? Or, again, have you said, have you left it all in that semifinal? Nope. I I was not even, like, I remember just looking at the scoreboard, seeing the word bronze, like, how the fuck did I get here? Because, like, I couldn't, I couldn't, I was not mentally prepared enough and and had enough experience where losing an important an important match on a world stage and having to come back from it i i had not had enough experience with that to be able to come back in a situation like that and turn my mental my mental side like back to like how am I going to win this fight? Like it just, because at the time, like once you make the semis, like once I was top five on the globe on a world stage, I threw caution to the wind. I was like, I'm going to take everyone's head off. I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. Like we're not in this for tactics anymore. And because at that point, like I had my points, right. Now I'm just out here to beat you by some way, shape, or form. Like, I'm going to go down swinging at this point, yeah. right? Like, so when I lost, like, it didn't really, like, emotionally affect me at that point. Because that was always my thing was get to the medal rounds. If I can get to the medal rounds, I'm good. It guaranteed me a spot at the Olympics. It guaranteed me the matches I need. And then I can really open up against some of the best players in the world in order to, like, really see what's going to work like we were in georgia and i made the finals against churchishvili and uh hannah martin came up to me and she was like so how are you gonna beat him and i was like i'm gonna fucking take his head off and he's gonna throw me or i'm gonna throw him and then sure enough i came in for a big koshi guruma and he flattened me it's a really nice picture if you google my name um <laughs> but like I wasn't upset about it. Like I went into those final blocks with this like Randori style mindset of like caution's gone. Let's just figure it out. And then when the Olympics come around, we'll have enough information over years of fighting these guys in important matches to understand how they're going to fight the fight. And then I can make these tactical changes because I'm disciplined enough in order to win. So I had never really been put in a situation. And at that time, if memory serves me right, when you lost in a semi, you got bronze. I believe that was the 2012 era. 
where it might have been right after. So it it was hard to like be in a situation where it's like, oh, well, your your entire life and what it stands for has now changed because you can never get it back. Yeah. People always ask that all the time, like, well, you know, what if you win the Olympics in 2016? And I go, then I should have been a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Like I should be a two-time Olympic finalist. Having had that experience though, and you kind of saying I didn't have the mental preparation or experience to cope with that semi-final at the time. Does that give you something extra for Rio? Is it a contributing factor? Let's say if you don't have Oh. That. Oh, sorry. Are you back? You really broke up there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I was saying that if you if you don't have that experience in the semi-final, referring to and you you kind of touched on it there, saying like I didn't have the mental experience, I didn't have the mental preparation. If you don't have that, do you have the medal in Rio still? Yes. My my judo going into Rio was was at a much different level than like when I went into 2012, I believed I was going to win like from like the bottom fiber in me was like, I'm winning London. This is happening. Right. But going into Rio, I knew I was going to win. There was, there was a difference. Like it was, it went from belief to knowing. Yeah. In that four year stretch where it was like. When I stepped on a mat, I knew I was going to medal at the tournament. Like and if I didn't, it was because some like weird fluke thing happened. That's unnatural to me. Yeah. And so. To me, like winning became natural. It it was like, uh, oh, what color do we get today? Right, let's see how the day goes. It wasn't like. Uh, Oh, we have to worry about this guy or that guy. Like, it was more like, oh, well, I always beat this guy, but it's a really tough fight. It was more like some matches were harder than others, but they were always going to be W's. Yeah. More so than like, oh, dude, this is a back and forth battle. Like, what do we do? Like, those didn't happen that often. Coming out of London, having done two Olympic cycles, and I, and I know you've talked previously about not really struggling with your identity um but following london did you know that you've got a third olympic cycle in you or is the disappointment the pain like so much that you you're unsure to be to be honest like after london i went through like a whirlwind of like you know almost quitting the sport, um, almost thrown out of the sport by the IJF, uh, um, suspended from the sport, from the IJF, like it, I was so angry at anybody at the IJF and anybody on a global scale because I, I honestly felt like they cheated me. Yeah. They used to cheat me from 2012 through 2013 going into 2014 that like I I almost just threw my hands up in the air and said fuck it 
didn't even care anymore. So it it was more like an angry teenager than than anything. And it it took me until I want to say it was 2014 in Germany where I finally was able to like mentally like turn it around and become like a new person where I finally got over what happened in in London. What were you suspended for? That's <laughs> so I I had had it out with a few guys at the IJF, like okay. a couple of them, right? Like I was at the World Championships one time in I think it was Rio. I think no, I can't remember, and. I was fighting um, one of the Hungarian guys. He was the shorter, stockier one. I can't remember his name now. And it had been the first time that I had gone into a world championships healthy. So, like, Jimmy was excited. The country was excited. I was excited because I I had, like, four months of, like, uninterrupted, like, training and preparation. So we go into the – into Gicek. Me and Big Jim, like, okay, we're ready. First round, here we go. The guy at Gicek looks at me from the IJF, and he's like, put your arms out. And I'm like, okay, I stick my arms out. I do the thing. And he's like, it doesn't pass. And I'm like, you have to measure it and then tell me it doesn't pass. You can't just look at it and tell me it doesn't pass. And he goes, okay, okay, okay. And he puts it up there, and he puts the Sokuteki on my gi and goes, it doesn't pass. And then Big Jim is now upset, and he's like, you tell me we're like, where does this key need to be? I'll go get one so that it passes. And without without even skipping a beat, the guy goes, any gi with your name on it, you're not going to be allowed to wear. And then Big Jim was like, you can't make that rule. So then he had to run to the IJF head table. Now, this is the first round before the Worlds. He has to run up to the IJF head table, get a guy down here. They're arguing for like 20 minutes about can my gi be worn or can't it, right? Because it meets all the requirements, but, you know, my gis are a little short. I had really good shoulder mobility as an athlete. So, like, I could retract my shoulders, like, farther than most people. <laughs> but, like, it passes. Yeah. So, That's you know, part of the game, it, though. That's part of it. That's, yeah. yeah you've got to That's that. not my fault, like, I work on my shoulder mobility as an athlete and other people don't like it is what it is. Like when I was in the finals of Georgia, when I fought, uh, Philly, that same guy came up to me for the finals. And he's like, I I'm past gi check. He comes up to me before I go on the fight and he goes, you can't wear that gi. And I quote, we're getting complaints on YouTube that your gi is really small. You're going to have to change it. I'm like, since when do the viewers on YouTube get to decide, like, if my gi passes or not? Like, you just checked it. And then he made me wear a gi off the rack. So, like, all these things are kind of, like, happening. Every event I go to, something weird happened. Like, I went to weigh-ins one time in South America. Where was I? I can't remember. And my weight was always an issue. Like 
I was cutting from like 88, 86 kilos down to 81 every event. And it was always a challenge. And I'm like, I'm so fucking tired. I'm on edge. And I'm the first person in line. Like I moved the whole U.S. team. I'm the first one on this fucking scale. I'm fucking dead. I'm so fucking tired. Guy comes in from the IJF and he's like, okay, we're ready to start weighing I take my shorts off. I'm butt fucking naked. And I go to step on the scale and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be naked during weigh-ins. You have to wear your shorts. And I was like, well, my shorts weigh like two pounds because I had these big sweat shorts on with no underwear because I'm fucking tired. We're in Brazil. Like, it's hot. And I go, no, I can weigh in naked. Like, I'm not supposed to wear clothing. And he goes, nope, you have to wear your shorts. And, of course, I'm overweight with my shorts. So, of course, I don't let anybody step on that fucking scale to start weigh-ins until Big Jim goes and gets the main hotel. He finds somebody from the IJF to come down and rectify the situation so that I can step on the scale without my shorts on just to make weight. Like little things like that were like happening like all over the circuit at the time. And I felt like personally attacked after watching the flag fiasco in London with Bischoff, where it's like, now I feel like it's personal. Because after that whole incident, when Jimmy goes on like national and international television talking about how corrupt the IJF is, because if you look at all the matches in London, there are almost no split decisions. Yeah. It wasn't just me. Like if you go back to like the Numa Korean match, right? They, I think, awarded a unanimous decision to Korea. Then they came back and then after 10 minutes, they pulled both athletes, which is unheard of. They put them back on the mat and like, well, we're going to re-vote. Then they all voted for Ebinuma. And it was like, does anybody here have a thought? How would you guys all go one way and then all go the other way? And it went, it either they all voted for Ebinuma and then came back and voted for it. It was one or the other. It was like the showing of like, clearly something was said where they didn't want the friction of a split decision. Yeah. And the first split decision didn't happen in London until the day after my fight. So it, you know, all these things kind of add up to like me being pissed off. Long story short, I show up in Abu Dhabi and I'm fighting an Iranian. Minute and a half of the fight, minute, minute and a half in. I I score, I think, a single Yuko or two Yukos, and then I lose on four Shitos for stalling. And I'm fucking like, I'm outraged at this point. Like, I end up cursing at the referee as I'm walking off the mat. And the stadium in Abu Dhabi had this... It was like a massive tarp for a backdrop. It was like 50 feet in the air. It was like the whole length of the gym. And I had a water bottle in my hand. And sure enough, I'm fucking an angry teenager by myself in Abu Dhabi, which had a whole nother shit show fiasco of like the IJF took my room away. They threw me out of my hotel room twice 
where like I went to the gym and came back and my stuff was in the hallway and I was locked out. Like all these different things. They took my meal tickets away that were pre-bought. Like it was a whole fucking shit show. So I take that water bottle and I throw it and I heave it right past the head referee table and it just <laughs> misses them. and it smashes into this like that massive tarp and it has this ripple effect where it goes boom woof, 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 woof. and it makes it the whole stadium goes quiet and they see me like storming off and Barcos, the head referee goes mr stevens can you come here and i went fuck you and i walked into the back room i was i was outraged and i created this whole like international scene of like me flipping off the head referees, me cursing out the referee. I got thrown out of the event. I flipped them off again. I packed up all my stuff and I went home. And then we had to go through this whole hearing and IJF thing. And I was suspended from the sport for like, I don't know, three or four months from like, I want to say, I think that event was in like October through like December. I couldn't, I couldn't compete. Is that 2013 going into 20, well, end of 2013, yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's a good but story, yeah, it, though. It's a good story to come back to. <laughs> it was it was a whirlwind of, like, that whole year was a whirlwind of, like, just feeling, like, personally attacked. Yeah. And on top of that, and you've, you've kind of already talked about it, referenced it from early on in your career. You've been plagued by injuries. And I know 2014, you were pretty good, but you, I mean, I imagine you were carrying little things. But end of 2014, 2015, I think in 2013 as well, although, again, I'm, this is me listening to podcasts, I might have got things wrong. You have just injury after injury, whether it's back, leg, concussion, hand wrist 2015 was a was a year where like i almost quit it was getting so bad where like my body was just not not taking it anymore you know i had that really bad concussion in dusseldorf fighting uh alan schmidt that knocked me out for almost four months my next my next competition wasn't until the Pan Am Championships where I trained for I want to say it was like six days. And we were like, ah, like it doesn't matter if you win or lose, like the there's a good shot you'll still get a bronze because you know it's the Pan Am Union, like, you know, you can you can nickel and dime your way into getting a bronze. because um, at that time, like there were only four of us that were really talented so when we're seated like yeah you might lose in the semi but then your bronze crossover will be fairly easy mm -hmm. right as long as you don't draw lucenti who potentially could cause problems for some of the more talented ones but and then yeah i i broke my thumb i SI joint got dislocated, my knee got infected, like it it was a point where like yeah, like did it may be time to like call it quits. What what keeps you in the sport? And again, I'm gonna 
there's stories to all of those injuries. I'm going to say people should go and listen to some of your other podcasts um, because you you again you tell an amazing story. Your knee, where you, you know for you, you're days away from dying, you're in hospital for a week. But what keeps you in the sport? Why you're a year out from Rio, but you're no, but even you know, now, like, falling look, apart. At this, look at this, like my whole, <laughs> I tore my pec like three days ago. So I got to have surgery on my shoulder now, even in fucking retirement in place, <laughs> like a fucking nightmare. Um, you know, there's, there's a feeling that you get of control and you know, that feeling of like, judo is not fun when you're really talented and you know, you're going to win. Right. When there's that, when there's that, like you're balancing on the edge of a knife and you could lose because that other person is talented. That's when like the fun happens. That's when it's like exciting where it turns into that, you know, game of like speed chess where, you know, things have to really go right really rapidly. And you have to recognize and feel certain situations where your instincts have to kick in more so than your game planning. Yeah. That those are the moments that like you live for when like you're winning matches based on your instinct rather than. Oh, I know I'm gonna beat you because if I do one, two, three, then I'm always gonna score. But when you get into those heated like back and forth gripping battles and movements and things are going off, and then you naturally just pull the trigger into certain throws and it feels so effortless, or you're able to transition and pressure somebody into doing like a bad attack and you move into Nawaza and you end up sticking them, like those moments and that feeling that I personally get. I can't recreate somewhere else because like when you do a sport like jujitsu, it's like, it's so slow and methodical that like, it's not really that fun. Like I know I'm going to win. Like it's not, you're not put in situations like when you're in jujitsu, it's like you're stuck somewhere. And if you don't know how to get out, you like see the writing on the wall and it's like, oh, well, I'm losing this position. It's just like, when am I going to lose it? Because I can't obviously get out of it. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like, well, at some point, you know, you're not going to the Olympics because you don't meet the standard. Like, now what? That's like every exchange in jiu-jitsu because you know ahead of time because it's all technique-based where you don't have that thrill of and the dynamics that judo has of being on your feet all the time. And like the level changing, the rotation, the speed, the power, the transition capabilities and the dynamics of judo are just unlike any other sport. There's an element of chaos. Yeah. And I, I like wrestling for that, that fact too. The one thing I don't like about wrestling is I can't grab you. Yeah. I just can't, I can't really get a hold of you and like stop you from running away and then put you through the floor as I see fit. It doesn't have quite that same feeling that I get when you can physically grab someone and pull them in and there's nothing you can do about it, but you can feel that sense of like panic in them. Yeah. Where they know something bad's about to happen. 
you can't I can't really get that in wrestling because you can't there's nothing to hold on to for me. So it's got that perfect blend of like both those two sports just put together a little bit more dynamically and explosively. Going going back a second, like uh, you referred to the fact you've torn your pec and everyone's going to listen to this at home. You just showed me some horrific bruising going down your arm. How does someone yeah. who is five years retired tear their pec? Having a play with the, the guys on the mat or something else? Yeah, yeah. You know, I work like 18 hour days. So like every once in a while, like I still teach classes, I still do things, but like I don't train that often with them. Yeah. So, you know, like I was up at like 4.15 and I worked all day, did a live session for American Judo you know, did a conference call, we're doing all these things. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to train tonight. And I was like, dude, I'm really tired. I go, I should probably warm up. And then sure enough, we were doing Nawaza and he was trying to pull my arm and like, it wasn't moving. Like it was, my arm was actually stuck in the position, not because I was pulling it in, but it was stuck. Like it was running into like a leg or something when he pulled it whole peck just ripped off and then sure enough my trainer finds out and he's like i told you you need to go to the gym i haven't picked up a weight in like six years i was like i'm fucking <laughs> done with it. i ain't got time for that anymore i got other things i need to focus on now i've actually got to go to the gym and like start getting back from some bit of shape um coming back to that run into rio a few months before, you're, I think you're outside the world top 10, you're 15th, 14th, 15th in the world cycle. And like, I'm because of your previous year, uh, I wonder if from a global perspective, you're maybe not considered a medal prospect. And I'm trying to say that as respectfully as possible. But then you have this moment at the World Masters where, like, bang, you win the Masters and all of a sudden everybody's got to go, oh, shit he's back and yeah i think you've... i think in january i was like maybe eight i think i was somewhere in the seating going into world masters i think i was seated at world masters but i was a low seed if memory serves me right because at that world masters event we were missing like the top six in the world like Japan didn't show up to that World Masters. Uh, Georgia didn't show up to that World Masters because a lot of those people that were top six, they didn't need the points from World Masters. Yeah. Right. But what a lot of people don't understand was I got a lot of confidence in in Tokyo. Right. Because I didn't train for all of 2015 for the most part, like I had maybe like a week or two of like pockets of training where I could like string together a couple of things and then go find a competition. But then I was back into rehab. Right. And then it was like, okay, let's get the rehab good enough to go train for two weeks. And then I got hurt again. Um, I went into to the Tokyo Grand Slam on, I think, two weeks of training. So I did maybe like eight sessions over two weeks 
of an hour and a half of judo and then flew to Tokyo and finished fifth. And I was like, that's when it showed me that like, even at my worst, I'm still a top contender in the world at my worst. I can still beat some of the world's best judo players. And that really showed me that like, if at my worst, I can be competitive at my best, I'm guaranteed to win. Guaranteed. So it, it really put it into perspective. And, and when we were at world masters, after I won my quarter, we actually had the conversation of the Olympic games and we had conversations of, should I even compete? Like, should I just go home after the quarters and not even show up for the semis? Because the way the points work out, like it determined seating for the Olympics. So we were like, we were looking at like, and trying to do the math over like who does what, who beats who, who wins it, who doesn't, and where everyone lands. And I remember Jimmy, we were sitting at like, uh, it was like a little cantina somewhere. And we were like, fuck it, win it. And we'll deal with it during Rio. Right. Cause we had that mentality of like, it's not going to matter at that point. Because the only fights that really mattered to us were the ones we were going to fight after the quarters anyways. So we just said, fuck it. And then we went into winning the semi and the, the final. Okay. Love that. And that kind of brings you up to Rio. Um, I know you had a little run out at 90s before between the, the Masters and Rio. Um, but coming into Never. Rio, like how... Never did it. Did you not? Nope. I was hospitalized. <laughs> so your prep for Rio then was not ideal? Nope. I, we were like, okay, so after World Masters, what are we going to do in Europe? And I was like, I want to go train with the Dutch team. Yeah, I, I got along with Van Tien. He was a great training partner. DeWitt was there. Hank Grohl's a nice guy. They have a bunch of strong guys to work out with. So we're like, let's go train with the Dutch team. And we spent, I want to say it was two weeks with those guys. Um, and I ended up breaking out in like really bad hives. Like, to be honest, when we left, when we were leaving the Netherlands to go to the Croatia event or training camp, uh, we had bed bugs and I was getting bit because like I would break out in these hives and like I would get really itchy and it was like uncontrollable. And it got to a point where on the way to the Croatia event, I paid for the business lounge at like Lufthansa because I needed to shower because I thought there was something on my skin that like a little bug or something that was like eating my skin, biting me because it was like a mosquito bite, but everywhere. And it was like flaring up. So I threw away all my clothes, brand new clothes at the airport, 
so there's like photos of me in like a suit and only clothing store that was available was a Hugo Boss at like one of the airports. And then I show up in Croatia and I go through this whole training camp where like half my body is like breaking out in these hives that like I can't I can't get away from. I'm taking baths, cold baths, like anything to deal with this like massive itch. And we end up going to Hungary and we make the decision as a team like if I make weight and I have that severe weight cut, there's a good chance I'll get injured really close to the games. So we agree, contractually agree that with USOC, USA Judo and myself and the coaching staff, I'm going to fight 90 kilos. But I have to weigh in at 85 kilos. I can't be like 90 kilos. Like I have to be somewhat reasonably close to a natural like 5% of the 81 yeah. kilo weight class, and then they'll let me fight. So I step on the scale at like 84.3 kilos and I'm good to go. And then that night, my whole body head to toe breaks out in highs. My whole face is there. I end up stumbling down into the lobby and the IJF is there and they end up calling their whole medical staff down to look at me. And they end up rushing me to the hospital that night to put me on a couple of different like injections and stuff. And like, they didn't allow me to compete the next day in Hungary. So that guy from Hungary, I was supposed to fight in the first round, got a walkover. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I was registered, but never fought. Right, 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 right. So you make it to Rio in almost one piece. Um, Yeah. I mean, again, you you look so composed throughout the day. You watching your you talk through your video. Um, yeah, you may be a little bit slower than in London, but you're. I think the pressure you bring constantly the throughout the fight, relentless. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great way to say it. Is is really apparent. But you end up again in a semi-final against the Georgian. Um, and it, you've talked before, and again, I'd say to people, go and listen to some of the other podcasts you've done about how you knew that you were going to win that match because you had this really kind of clear plan. You knew what you were going to do. I want to know, though, at any stage, are you getting flashbacks to four years before? At any stage, are you going, this is it, this is my last chance? Uh, there was one moment, there was one moment where like, again, like I had this mentality when I get to the semis, when I do judo, like that we're fucking throwing caution to the wind. Fuck it. I'm, I'm out for blood. And I break the rules of like what I'm supposed to be doing with Church's Dilly. And I come in for that, like Ipon Sanagi, like Tani Atoshi, and I fucking, I get him up in the air and I fucking lose control. And then I land fucking flat on my back. And I, I remember going back to the line and I look, I look over at like the IJF and the head table. And I was like, you better not fuck me. There was no way he was in fucking any control. And I was like, and then it, and then like 10 seconds goes by and I was like, they're going to fucking fuck me. I go, at least make it a wizard. Cause I'll beat him. I'll beat him. Just make it a wizard. I'll come back. I promise. Just don't call it a bone. And then sure enough, they called nothing. And I was like, Today's my day. You catch you catch the strangle. 
Like, what's yeah. that feeling like? You, it look, you just the relief, the excitement, it, it all kind of explodes out of you. What's that like? Yeah, it was, it was all of that, that like, what London should have been came out, and like all that, that pain and like frustration and feeling robbed, all kind of like. I wouldn't say like it was okay, but like it made that moment more special because it like proved the point of all the hardship that had happened from London until Rio. Love that. In London, you have to recompose yourself from what is one of the most emotionally draining kind of matches I'm sure you've ever had in, if not the most emotionally draining matches you've ever had in your life because of the way it finished uh, because of the the tension in the fight the semi-final in Rio is I would I wonder if it is as emotionally draining but in the opposite uh kind of fashion because it's all happened how do you recompose yourself for that final the the final was a little bit of a, a catastrophe because when every Olympic Games that I go to, we always pick 15 names out of the entire division. And they're the only 15 people that we do workshops on, meaning like we watch videos, we figure out what makes them tick, how they win, how they lose, when they get penalties, what they get penalties for. Um, and everybody I fought in London was a part of those 15. Everybody I fought in Rio was a part of those 15, except for the Russian. Because we didn't think about or look at, you know, how... When we looked at it, like he wasn't the one coming through that bracket yeah. to us, even in the semi, like I expected, I think it was Nagase was the one I was going to fight in the final. It was like that. If I fought Nagase, I win that final hands down. Like he is, he was a guy I was ready to beat. you know, the lefty from Russia, on the other hand, like not as prepared for as I probably should have been, but he just wasn't on my radar as somebody who could make it through the bracket on that side. Because we knew he was going to be on the opposite side of me because of the seating. So it at that point, it was caution to the wind. Like we were flying by the seat of our pants. Like we knew a few things, but like there was no dedicated plan like the rest of them. Okay. The fight's done. You're silver medalist. You're on the podium. What what's kind of going through your head at that stage? Is it uh, relief? Are you excited to be there, or is it something where you know I was so close? Um, I would say it was like a sense of relief where I lost my my ability to compete. Uh, like this, I could feel it. Like the second, the second I 
hit my back and they called it like you can see me lying there and I could feel it like leave my body where like that sense of competitiveness the sense of pride like it was kind of gone like I felt like everything that I pushed myself for and competed for was like I could hang my hat on my career and I could be okay with what I did in London and all these other events I didn't feel like I I was at that point of my end in Rio at the Olympic final like I felt like all the Grand Prix, all the Grand Slam, all the Pan Am, all the European medals and European team championship medals to the Bundesliga that we had won. Like, I felt like that was like the cherry on top. Like, it was done at that point. Like, I could step away and be okay. And it was a feeling I got before I ever, I ever even left the tatami. Did you know then that that was you done? That there would be no Tokyo cycle? No, that we planned on Tokyo. Okay. Yeah, Tokyo was part of the plan. So when did you make that decision? When did you make the decision to, to step away? You know, the plan was originally to go to Tokyo, but go at 90 kilos. Okay. And... I was going to start again, this was all theory at the time, but I was going to be the under 23 coach for USA judo for two years as while I was competing in the 90 kilo weight class and training. So it was going to allow me two years to get strong enough and big enough to compete at the 90 kilo weight class because they are physically bigger humans than 81. Right. So it was going to take a little bit of time to like mature into the bracket. And then after two years, if I felt like I could start the quad and be competitive and win another medal, I would continue. Otherwise, I would just go into coaching for USA Judo and just follow the team along. And sure enough, that whole deal fell through. And I was like, I came back from vacation after Rio and I was like, that we're done. This is over. We just called it quits. We carried on negotiations with USA Judo until like, I want to say like February or March of 2017. And then that was it. How do you go from being this hugely driven athlete, three Olympic cycles, super clear goal, Olympic champion, Olympic medal to stepping away from the sport like how do you find direction not not stepping away from the sport stepping away from your athletic career how do you find direction from there you know everyone everyone's a little bit different um part of part of our development strategy you know with jimmy and big jim is all of us needed to have goals outside of the sport that we were doing so that our entire focus in life wasn't built around sports because we feel like if all you're doing is judo there's going to be too much pressure you need something else in your life to keep you happy keep you focused take your mind off things so that you can be more relaxed and if things don't go your way you have something to fall back on so at the time you know 
in 2015 through like end of 20 end of 2014 through 2015 i had really gotten into like internet marketing so i had built a couple of companies like i was drop shipping stuff from china through ebay through amazon like and i was making decent money at it so i already was working outside of judo on like what my future would be so when judo kind of ended like i just took on the role of you know coaching you know some of our higher end athletes at the time along with working through internet marketing and stuff and running my own school which i was all already doing so my life didn't really change as much as you know instead of going to the gym in the morning i went to work and i went to practice to coach the kids but then i went back to work so my physical output changed and my routine changed a little bit but it wasn't like i just walked away from the sport entirely like i still have the ability if i want to go do randori i can go do randori like i can still do that if i want to and sometimes i do has your success and, and obviously Kayla and, and Marty Malloy and the guys before you, but I think obviously 2012, 2016, um, has that success led to a change in US judo? Um, as in, we've just had 2021. There were no medals for the US team. We're about to go into a, another Olympic cycle. And at this stage, you've got some very good athletes but I think you'd struggle to say there's an Olympic medal there at the moment. And that's, I don't want to be massively unfair to the men and women who are competing. I wouldn't say that. This will be the the first time in US judo history that there's two Olympic cycles back to back without a judo medal. Obviously, LA is six years away. Has your success, Kayla's success, Marty's success, uh, Jimmy's success changed anything? Has it given direction? Is there, are there going to be medals in LA? Are there going to be medals four years after that in Australia? Um, again, going back to the original thing we were talking about, the IJF tour and the professionalism of the tour has really hindered the US. We don't have the budget to be competitive on the world stage. On so many different levels like you know i hate to say it but you know if the ijf is going to make the world stage as competitive as they had and as expensive as they have they should almost restrict the number of pointable events per continent that are allowed like there shouldn't be 10 in europe they're, they should be spread out evenly amongst all the different continents so that, you know, like I, every time the Europeans or the Asians come to the U.S., all they do is complain about jet lag and how hard it is to compete here. And it's like, that's every weekend for us. Like, we don't get on one-hour flights. We get on, like, eight and ten-hour flights, depending on layout. Like, they could be 17-hour travel days while trying to cut weight like the french team gets on a plane and like they're in germany in like an hour like their weight cutting is like i missed lunch for the day 
like their <laughs> their routine is not really that different you know so we definitely have different struggles but the the big thing that a lot of people don't understand is they see what we did on a global scale and they think that if they go there they could recreate that what they never saw was all the work and dedication like before we ever left that was put in and all of the trips that weren't publicized like i spent a month in france i spent two weeks in russia and sochi training with their national team like they don't they don't see those trips and they don't hear about them and now they're staying home and they're just traveling thinking they're going to get the results over time but they don't also don't understand how much work was put in at the events from the coaching staff and again just because you're a coach doesn't mean you have the years or the depth of knowledge and development that athletes need in order to progress them like yeah anybody can be a cheerleader on the side of a mat i get it but it takes it takes a lot of intelligence to be able to break down an athlete and understand what makes them tick so that you can develop your athletes in order to win because certain divisions require different types of athletes. Certain throws work better in certain divisions over others. You know, like it just, it is what it is. Certain body types do throws better than others. Like, there's a lot that goes into coaching and athlete development more so than being present on a mat and deciding the number of Randori sessions that somebody needs to do. And it's the one thing that our country just hasn't, hasn't grasped because they don't understand the amount of knowledge that like Jimmy and big Jim have from decades of competing at that level and coaching at that level that you can't just put somebody in that chair and recreate all of that knowledge. Like it's going to take a huge investment into somebody's time, energy, and effort to acquire it and then be able to utilize it. And right now we don't put any stock into that coaching uh, position to, to help the athletes really develop. And Kayla, Marty and myself wouldn't have had the success we had without that knowledge. And I think not enough people give enough credit to that position and how vital it is to winning medals at the highest level. Because athletes can't do it by themselves. None of us do. No, of course. Trying to link this now into um, kind of judo fanatics, but my my finesse <laughs> has gone <laughs> at this stage. Um, oh yeah, wrapping up, and I love the stuff you guys are, are trying at judo fanatics. I love how you're kind of capturing knowledge. Um, you you may be building on like what fighting films did very well. I um, certainly remember in the nineties, early two thousands, like. A instructional video coming out from one of the legends from Akoga, a young uh, later and an Inui. But I love that you guys have gone broader than that. Um, like you, you're still getting great champions on. But I, I don't know if there's a question in there. Was it always intentional, I guess, to kind of share, want to share that knowledge, um, capture it? Well, you know, what a lot of people don't 
don't understand is like I learned so much of my judo from coaches that don't even speak English. Like one of my entire Newaza series is that I use. I learned while I was in France at the INSEP with their coaches on like a random Friday afternoon when the coaches were like moving athletes through groups and they were each teaching different things. One of the things that guy showed, it just stuck with me and it made sense. And I never would have had that information available to me if I wasn't in France at that particular time with that particular coach. You know, like if I miss practice that day, I lose an entire series that have won me countless matches. You know, like there's there's so much information out there from so many different people that, you know, it's funny because when I started Judo Fanatics and after I retired, my Judo got so much better as an athlete. Like even when I was training with like Colton, like, he was like, when I was an athlete, I, he was like, you were easier to deal with than you are now. Cause now I have so many tools to work with because I sat behind the camera during like Basili's video. Like I know how he does it. I don't even need to understand him. Like I know enough judo to like watch it and see it and get that understanding of like what the goals are now and how he sets it up to pull it off. Like I was in Korea when John filmed his video or Choi filmed his video. Like, I understand how he does his sayo now. Now I can go back to the room. I can never practice it, and I can throw people with it. Because, like, I understand why it works now. But when you watch him compete, you think he's just doing drop sayo, but that's not the case. He has these, like, little nuances that he does and ways of doing it that make sense for him. I'm not saying I would have adopted that as an athlete myself. But that those little tidbits of information can help people from anywhere on like a global scale because you just don't know. So judo fanatics can really make those pairings for people. And then you think about it, right? You think about like the Inoue DVD that Fighting Films did. You think about like the Huzinger DVD and it's like, but then you, you think like go back to like Koga. Right. All these videos that have had such a a massive impact and as much as they are entertaining to watch because they throw all the highlights in the part that really excites me is like I built my Sayanagi off Koga's video. Right. I, I remember the same. Like you see the video and then that's yeah. it. Six weeks of just trying the, the deep step. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all learned it. Because somebody decided to capture it on film and share it with the world, right? And judo people today feel like they can't learn things online or you can't learn judo online. And it's like, you're right, but you can get an idea of what you're supposed to be doing when you do go to the mats to actually like be excited about learning something new and trying something new so that you're constantly developing, right? We have these particular styles and I tell people all the time. If, if you could put everybody in like a green suit, right. And a judo gi on, and you taken it, somebody that has judo knowledge and you watch two people work out, 
you can identify where that player is based on how they do judo. Like you can look at people and you go, he's Korean. Yeah. He's Japanese. That guy's Russian. That guy's Georgian. Like you can just tell by like how they move, the techniques that they put together, how they put them together. They're, they have key identifying traits to them, especially a lot of the top countries, right? And so when you can start to pull out the things that make them great and get them captured on camera, you can start to develop the world and all these people that don't or can't afford to travel on a global scale. There's no reason why a guy in Ecuador or the coach in Ecuador can't buy Darcel Yanzi's videos on how he sets up his combinations that we see on Instagram. There's no reason for it. There's no reason why a guy in Australia can't buy Fabio's video that's 66 kilos that wants to understand why he foot sweeps everybody and how he sets it up. I can't tell you after watching him do it, like how many people I have foot swept since learning that. And it seems so stupid when you see it, like it makes common sense, but we get so tunnel visioned in our learning because we identify as certain players that we forget to broaden our horizons and become more dangerous as judo players. So I love the idea of capturing where fighting films did a video every so often with particular people. I want to capture as many people as possible. Like one I'm really excited about is we just got uh Fonseca from Portugal. He's yeah, going to do yeah. a video for us. Like Amazing. I'm excited to see it. I just I want to I want to understand his thought process on what he does in order to be as successful as he's been. That yeah, I mean just talking about potential videos that is going to be super exciting in itself, but I love this idea that yeah, you're trying to capture as much knowledge and think about like all past champions that like you would have loved to have like gone back now and been like, how'd you do that? Yeah. Like, so much gets lost. So much gets lost so quickly from the sport. And eventually it makes its way back in. You see something, you go, oh, that was, that was from the 96 right. Olympics. And, but it's, yeah, I think for judo fanatics, it's really exciting. Um, you, you're talking about, yeah, capturing a Darcel or a Legrand or whoever it might be. Yep. Um, yeah, you've got some really exciting guys there. And it's the part that really shocked what was I had a lot of momentum and then COVID hit. Okay, okay. And then it like, I can't really get on the world tour anymore. I can't meet the athletes. It's hard to get people in and out of Europe to film. Like it's really slowed the the library yeah. for the for the site. As it's still growing, but it's not growing at like the rate I really wanted it to like, you know get off the ground with yeah no but it's, it's progress it's also work mate um i'm gonna wrap up because i'm gonna have to head off to work and i'm sure that you've got other things to be doing with your day than chatting to me but uh can i just say thank you so much it's been amazing it's fascinating insight into like your career a little bit about what you're doing now um i really appreciate your time of course thank you happy to do it guys I hope you've enjoyed that episode. Um, all the usual nonsense. Look out for stuff in the future. Like, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. I will catch you soon.